All right, good morning, everyone. Um, we are chapter three, Victory of Light. We have some really, really important stuff to talk about. Oh, so here's what I want to do. Let's, I would like everyone to grab a sitter. Uh, Marnie, can you just take a handful and start passing them around? Um, what we're going to do is, I want to show you a very interesting section of the prayers that we recite on the holidays of Hanukkah and Purim. And this is the way we've been praying for over 2,000 years. So this is not like within the last century we've added these prayers. This is like 2,000 years of Jewish prayer. And this is what we've been saying about the holidays of Hanukkah and Purim. So let's, uh, let's get these passed down. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you the page numbers. Or the page number of this. All right, it is in the Amida, and it's on page 51. Okay, page 51. Thank you, Marnie. Really appreciate it. Page 51, it's in the Amida. Now, just a little bit of a history on the Amida. When the Talmud refers to tefillah, when the Talmud refers to prayer, it's referring specifically to the Amida. What, is, what does the word Amida mean? Amida means standing. Why do we call this prayer standing? Because you're supposed to recite it while standing. Right? As, as its name indicates, we say it while standing. That's why it's called the Amida. What's the other name for the prayer? What's the other name that we know the Amida prayer as? The Shmona Esrei. Ever hear that one? The Shmona Esrei? Shmona Esrei means 18. Shmona is 8. And Esrei or Esrei is 10. So 10 plus 8. You're basic 18. Why is it called 18? Because there are 18 blessings in the Amida prayer. The Amida prayer contains various blessings. Blessings for wisdom. Blessing for forgiveness. Blessings for, and when I say blessings, what I mean is we, we bless God, but we're asking. It's basically like requests. So we ask God for wisdom. We ask God for forgiveness. We ask God for clarity of vision. We ask God for healing. We ask God for a, uh, a secure livelihood. We ask God for protection from harm from those that might wish to harm us. We ask Hashem to return us to a place of serenity and, and, and uh, a leadership position. We ask God to return us to Jerusalem with the coming of Mashiach. We ask God to listen to our prayers, etc. We ask God for all of the essential, basic, human, and specifically Jewish needs that we have. It's such a central prayer because prayer is defined as asking God for what you need. Now we know that prayer is also connection. And prayer is first and foremost connection. But how, in which context do we connect with God? In this dialogue of prayer? In the context of, Hashem, God, I know that everything comes from you. I know that all of my blessings, my clarity of mind, my ability to understand things, my, the, the forgiveness that I achieve and that I can give in my lifetime, the, the, uh, the healing that I may need or somebody that I love may need. All of these things, all of these things are needs that we recognize are coming from Hashem, coming from God. And when we open up our voice, when we open up our lips in prayer, what we're basically saying is that God, 
that we're acknowledging that these, that these gifts, that these blessings are indeed coming from God. And that's the nature of the dialogue. The dialogue is, God, I know all of this. Everything comes from you. These are the things that I need, or these are the things that my loved ones need. And therefore, although we pretty much, everyone needs, even if we're in good health, we need continued good health, etc. Even though we have clarity of mind, we need continuing, continued clarity of mind, etc. So all of these things are basic human needs. And we open up the dialogue with God, saying, God, I know that it's all your blessing, and therefore I ask you to give these to me. So it's called, again, the Amida Standing Prayer. It's called the Shemona Esrei 18. There are 18 benedictions, 18 blessings, although there are actually 19. A 19th got ad- added. It was originally said as 18. And by the way, when was this said? I'm glad you asked. These prayers were formulated by the Anshe Knesset Hagdola, by the men of the Great Assembly, who lived at the beginning of the Second Temple Era, which goes back... The temple's been destroyed in the year 70. So that's like 1940 years ago, give or take. Right? The second temple, temple was up for 420 years. So 420 plus 1940 is... Aye. 1940 plus 400... It's like... It's like... Uh, no, 23... No, no, no. 1940. Yeah. The year 1940. No, no. 1,940 years plus 420 years. 2350. About 20. 1940 since the destruction of the temple. It's been what's been 1,940 years. The temple is destroyed in the year 70. We're now in the year 2013. So that's right. That's 1,943 years. Rounded down to 1940. It's been 1,940 years since the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 69 or 70. Give or take a few years. Right? And then the temple itself was lasted for 420 years. So we're going back another 420 years for what, at the beginning of the Second Temple Era. So that totals about 2,350 years. Give or take a few years. So the prayer has been formulated. These prayers of the Amid have been around for over 2,300 years. These are not some, you know, uh, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Johnny-come-lately <laughs> prayers. These are not like, oh, hey, let's, let's pray. It's been like, since the shtetl in the 1800s, we've had these prayers. Or since America was founded in 1776. Are you kidding me? 1776, we were like 2,000 years into this. This is, this is 20, almost 2,400 years old. And, and I'll tell you that even before they formulated the prayers, prayers were always said. But the specific exact formula that everyone should have a standard that was accepted by every Jewish community, although back then, how many Jewish communities were there? There was Israel and Babylonia, Bavel, where they were exiled, pretty much two communities. They were all pretty you know, close together anyway. But it was, it was accepted, canonized, put into the prayer book, Siddur. Every Siddur, every traditional prayer book has the same prayers. There might be a, a variation, a Nusach. Nusach means a, a, a textual, like the actual, um, how would you translate Nusach? Nusach is um, the language of the prayer, a word here, a word there is different. But, but by and large, the prayers, and when I say by and large, I mean like 99%. Same prayers, same text, same order, the same deal. Okay, so that's 
That's where these prayers originated from. But I'm curious about something. Yes. No, no, no. Prayers were written by Prayers were formulated by great tzaddikim and prophets who had insight into the way that prayer ought to be formulated. In other words, you have people, masters of the spirit and godly individuals and, and, and tremendous, and, and even again back in the day, in those days, there were prophets. Not, I'm not talking about the Gelt prophets. I mean the, with the PH prophets. Um, and so, you know, the people that had insight, that had access to things that we don't have access to. And so when they formulated the prayers, they formulated in, in, in what we would call a perfect way. The perfect prayer. So the, 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 the definition of what prayer is, is the Amida. It's the standing prayer. We, where did we learn to stand during the Amida? Why is it called Amida? Because you stand. Why do we stand? We learn the rules of prayer, of the Amida, from a woman whose name was Chana. There was a woman whose name was Chana. And Chana, the story in the books of the prophets, the story in the book of Samuel, the, the, the scripture tells us that Chana was barren. She did not have any children. And so she went, one year, she went to the temple, or to the Mishkan, the tabernacles, before the temple, before King David and King Solomon's times. So she went, made a pilgrimage to the tabernacle. It was then in, where was it? I forget where it was. It was in one of the cities in Israel. It wasn't in Jerusalem then. Jerusalem wasn't the capital. And at that point, and she went there and she started praying. She was praying from her heart, praying for a son. She wanted a child. The high priest of the time who was working in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, his name was Eli. Eli sees her. And famously, what does he do? He accuses her of being shikr. You know what shikr means? Drunk. Because he sees this woman standing and shaking and moving her lips, but he couldn't hear any sounds. And he says, remove your drunkenness from this place of holiness. Sorry, this is not, uh, it's not a place, you know, after you say a few l'chaims, you're not supposed to come to the temple. You know, there are other places to hang out. Sober up, come back. And she says, with all due respect, and the dialogue is recorded in the book of Samuel, with all due respect, I'm not drunk, but rather I'm opening up my heart and pouring out my heart to God because I have a very deep and profound request. And what is it? The request for a child. So he says, if that's the case, may God answer your prayers. And she says, not only that, if God answers my prayers, she responds to him, I will dedicate my son to holiness. And I'll bring him back and you can raise him. And the story goes, she goes back home, she gets pregnant, she gives birth to a son. She names her son Samuel. Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet. The one who anointed the first two kings of the Jewish people. King Saul and King David. They were anointed by the prophet Samuel. Samuel was born to Hannah. And after, after, he was, after she nursed him for the first few years, she brought him, you know, so he's, he's now good to go, he's eating solids, whatever it is. So she brought him back to the tabernacle, and she brought him, and she said to Eli, you should raise him in a holy environment, teach him, educate him. And he became, uh, perhaps, um, one of the greatest prophets 
of Jewish history. And the whole, there's, there's two books of Samuel named after him. Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Be'ez, Samuel 1, Samuel 2. Sequel. Sequel was better than the first time. <laughs> Alright, so there's... So this is the story of Hannah and her prayer. And we learn from Hannah's prayer how to pray. When the sages formulated, when the Anshayi Knesset HaGadolam, when the men of the Great Assembly formulated prayer, they said, the Amidah, that's going to be the big, that's going to be the focal point of the prayer. And we're going to pray like Hannah, standing, speaking, but speaking softly. So the rest of the prayers we say out loud. Well, Baruch you say quietly, but pretty much the rest of the prayer, bad example. The rest of the prayers, you say, You say it out loud. Comes to Amida, everyone a little bit quieter. You're not supposed to, it's not a meditational prayer where you're just thinking. You're supposed to utter the words, but you utter the words in a way softly, like in a whisper or an undertone, where only your own ears can hear, hear it. But your ears have to hear it. So you say, it's audible, but it's very, very subtly audible. Where do we learn how to pray? From this great, great, great woman whose name was Hannah. Every prayer, all of the, the way we pray for over, for nearly, for over 2,300 years, it's all derived from Hannah's prayer. Now, what happened was the sages, of the, the men of the Great Assembly, in addition to formulating and articulating the Amidah, which is, which is an original prayer in the sense that it's original words that are language of asking for things. What they did was they created, you can't just, you know, in, in life, you can't just go in for the ask. You can't just say, hey, can I have a raise? It's not, it doesn't work like that. So it's not like we're asking God for a raise, not as, you know. But you have to kind of move into that space and then move out of that space. It's like running a marathon or running whatever it is. You have to like, you have to warm up. And then you get into it, and then you have to cool down a little bit. So in prayer, the prayer is not just the beginning, and it's not just the Amidah. The beginning is, there's lots of other stuff. And it's not only to get the conversation rolling, the dialogue rolling, it's to get us in the right frame of mind as well. In other words, you can't really be in that space of, I'm speaking to God now, and this is really big, and I'm standing before God. You can't get there if you were just uh, checking the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, 30 seconds ago. It's not going to happen. You're going to be distracted. You're not going to be focused. You're not going to be in that space. So what do you do? So we have a whole prayer book beforehand. We have, uh, you know, that Mita starts on page 45. Well, you got 40 odd pages. They're not all odd. But 40 interesting... Huh? Not and even. 40 some pages beforehand to kind of get you in that dialogue, to get your, you focused. These, the prayers before are called from various sources. Some are original, but most are from the book of Psalms. Some are from the Torah. We talk about the Exodus a little bit and the splitting of the sea. We also cite the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy, the, the, the great prayer that, that talks about the oneness of Hashem, and the other paragraphs uh, that also of the Shema that also come from the Torah. So we have a, 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 a nice combination of prayers from different sources, building up to the crescendo, which is the Amidah, and then afterwards, there are other prayers as well that take us to the end of the, uh, the, end of the davening, the end of the prayer service. That's all for the morning service. There's a shorter afternoon service and a short evening service as well. There are three prayers every single day. The other services are really short, about 10 minutes or so max. Now, in the Amidah, whether it's the morning Amidah, 
the afternoon Amidah. There's Amidah, whichever prayer you're praying, whether it's the morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, the evening prayer, there's always an Amidah. Because remember, the Amidah is like the, the focal point. So if it's, called, if it's a prayer service, there has to be an Amidah there. There has to be. In the Amidah, on both Hanukkah and Purim, we add in a special paragraph about the holiday. As well as on other Jewish holidays, biblical Jewish holidays. Hanukkah and Purim are, are Jewish holidays that are not biblical in origin because the Bible, the Torah, is taking place during the, primarily during the times of the Exodus and the 40 years following the Exodus. The story of Purim and Hanukkah happened centuries later. So, although they're Jewish holidays, they're not what we would call biblical holidays because they're post-biblical times. They're post-five books of Moses times. So, we include them in our prayers, but we include them in a separate section than we would include, let's say, the example, the mention of Passover. So, the mention of Passover is included in a separate paragraph, as well as Sukkot or, or Rosh Chodesh, other holidays that are more biblical in nature, so we have them in a separate par- paragraph. Hanukkah and Purim have their own mention, have a, their own section in the Amidah. And again, this is found on page 51. On page 50, by the way, if you turn back a page earlier, you'll see on page 50 at the bottom, that's where the, par- in the, Siddur, that's where the paragraph is for Rosh Chodesh, Passover, and Sukkot. You see there in the little, uh, in the little box on the bottom of 50, you have a little section over there, and you see that there are three columns. You add in either for Rosh Chodesh, for Passover, or Sukkot, you add in the appropriate mentions. But if you turn the page to 51, you see after the Modim prayer, after the Modim blessing, you then recite on the bottom of 51, another, uh, this is for Hanukkah and Purim, it has its own separate mention. What I want to do is, I want to read these paragraphs. I want to read these paragraphs because it's going to be very important in understanding the, uh, the spiritual, the mystical take on Hanukkah, and it's, uh, the, the contrast from Hanukkah to Purim. So let's read this. Um, Ed, can I ask you to, to, to read this in English? Where are we? Well, bottom of 51. And you'll see it in the gray box where it says, and we thank you for the miracles. So start with that paragraph, and then we're going to segue into, the, into Hanukkah and Purim. And I'll, well, I'll tell you how to do that. And we thank you for the miracles, for the redemption, for the mighty deeds, for the saving acts. And for the wonders which you have wrought for our ancestors in those days at this time. Now, let me tell you how this how the Siddur works. When you see a shaded box, what it means is you're not always saying it. The shaded box means on special occasions, at the appropriate times, you're going to say this. Everything else is a regular mention. The shaded box are on special occasions. During the eight days of Hanukkah, you'll say that opening paragraph, and then you'll go to the left paragraph where it says for Hanukkah. On the one day of Purim. This is all intentional. I don't know why, but it's all intentional. <laughs> drum roll, please. On, oh, for Purim, right. And, and on Purim, the one day of Purim, drum roll, please. We already had that. You revert to the right column, the right pair, the right, uh, yeah, the right side of the line. Let's start with Hanukkah. Ed, take it away. In the days of Matityahu, the son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean and his sons, when the wicked Hellenic government rose up against your people... Israel to make them forget your Torah and stay to the left. Violate the decrees of your will, but you, in your abounding mercy, stood by them in the time of their distress. You waged their battles, defended their rights, and avenged the wrongs done to them. You delivered the might, mighty into the, into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few. 
the impure into the hands of the pure, the wicked into the hands of the righteous, and the wanton in sinners into the hands of those who occupy themselves with your Torah. You made a great and holy name for yourself in your world and effected a great deliverance and redemption for your people Israel to this very day. Then your children entered the shrine of your house, cleansed your temple, purified your sanctuary, kindled lights in your holy courtyards, and instituted these eight days of Hanukkah with thanks and praise to your great name. Make sense? It's a beautiful paragraph, very clear and concise. If you ever wanted to know about Hanukkah, Boom, right here. This is what happened. The Hellenic, the Hellenic government rose up and they wanted us to, to forget Torah and mitzvot and then you helped us and we took over although we were few and although we were weak and although we were, you know, the, this, maybe fetching a little bit, whatever it was. Ay, <laughs> too many latkes, I can't move. Ay, how am I going to fight now? Ay, Beryl, help me out. Right. So you have... And yet, Hashem made a great miracle, and we were able to overcome the opposition, and we were able to reclaim the temple, light the, light the lights, light the, light the, the kindle the lights, and we instituted Hanukkah. What beautiful, beautiful. Let's read the story of Purim. Let's read the story of Purim. And it's on the right-hand side, so go back to 51. Ed, you're doing great. If you don't mind reading uh, the, the, the story of Purim captured in a paragraph. Now, this is the Gatsa Megillah, which means the whole Megillah, in one paragraph right here. Now, on, on Purim, we read the whole Megillah. By the I don't know if you know this. There's also a Megillah for Hanukkah. Did you know this? It's called Megillat Antioch, or Antiochus, or something. It's the Megillah of... I don't know why it's named after the bad guy. The Megillah's Esther is named after the heroine. The Megillah Santiyoch is, is named after the... But anyway, there is a Megillah scroll, a book that's, that's of Hanukkah, but it never became officially part of the Jewish scriptures, for whatever reason. Anyway, um, okay, take it away from Purim. In the days of Mordechai and Esther, in Shushan, the capital, when the wicked Haman rose up again, then sought to destroy, slaughter, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, infants and women, who one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to take care of the spoil for plunder. But you, in your abounding mercy, spoiled his counsel and frustrated his intention and caused the evil he planned to recoil on his own head, and they hanged him and his sons on the A little bit more, uh, a little bit darker, right? A little hanging going on, a little more... Uh... Okay, so what do you see? What do you see? This is Hanukkah and that's Purim. We have two different, two holidays. Post-biblical holidays, Hanukkah and Purim. Hanukkah, you have your latkes, Purim, you have your hamantashen. Both days of great, great feasting. What, what might you discern the difference in the plot? Something we spoke about last week. What do you see with the plot? Hanukkah, what do they want to do? Torah and mitzvot. In Purim, what do they want to do? Kill us! That's remember we said this last week on Purim it was a physical threat. Hanukkah was a spiritual threat. Purim is a physical holiday. What do we do? We feast. I, I know that the joke is we always eat, and it's true. But there's a mitzvah on Purim. The mitzvah of Purim involves food. There are four primary mitzvot on Purim. Two of them have to do with food. That's fifty percent. If you're batting five hundred, you're better than Ted Williams. And his head. <laughs> right, sorry, right? He had his head frozen. You, huh? Some, yeah. Uh, so, you're, you, 50% of the mitzvot on Purim, you have, listening to the Megillah, okay, so you're listening to the story. 
You have giving charity, okay, giving charity, money. But then you have giving gifts of food to others, and you have having a suda, having a feast. That's all the mitzvah. The mitzvah is, is very, very much, you know, it's an edible mitzvah, if you will. It's very much of a food, gastronomical uh, Judaism. That's Purim, because it's a physical day. We're celebrating our physical life and our physical uh, salvation, if you will. On Hanukkah, it's a spiritual holiday. Hanukkah was all about what they try to do to, to take us away from Torah and mitzvot. There was a spiritual um, a spiritual thread hanging over our heads. They wanted to take us away from Judaism, not from life. They didn't want to kill us. They wanted to take us away from Torah and mitzvot. And therefore, what do we do? What's the mitzvah, the one mitzvah on Hanukkah? It's not to eat a latka. There's no mitzvah. On Purim, it's a mitzvah to have a su'udah, to have a su'udat mitzvah, to have a, a feast. It's a mitzvah. To wash your hands for bread, to sit down and feast, and to give gifts of food to other people, to friends and, 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 and neighbors, etc. On Hanukkah, there's no such mitzvah. You can take all your jelly donuts, and you take all your latkes, and you can put them away, and you don't have to touch them. Zero calories, as long as you light the menorah, you'll have fulfilled the one and only mitzvah of Hanukkah. It's lighting the Hanukkah. It's lighting the candelabra, lighting those Hanukkah lights. That's the mitzvah. It's light, it's oil, it's brightness, it's clarity of vision, etc. It's spiritual. It's not because it's not a physical holiday, it's a spiritual holiday. If it was a physical holiday, we wouldn't need two of them. We don't in Judaism we don't have holidays that have the same theme, that have the same energy. Because if you need a shot of that energy, if you if you need a shot of that energy, you already have a you already have a time for that. Every mitzvah is another, is another aspect of, of energy for the person. Every holiday is another jolt of energy. I want to give you just a, a parable that I believe the Baal Shem Tov taught about Jewish holidays. He said like this, There was once a king who was traveling with his entourage, including his family. And at some point along the journey, they were in the middle of nowhere. As we used to say as kids, a Yiddish thing, they were in Yehupitz. I don't know why Yehupitz is nowhere. Maybe it existed somewhere in Poland and nowhere. But anyway, it's Yehupitz. Yehupitzville, whatever. They're in the middle of nowhere. You heard Yehupitz. All right. You can corroborate my story. So they, they, they were in they were middle of nowhere. And the son says, Father, I'm, hung, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Can you wait? It's like when your kids are on a road trip. I need to go to the bathroom. It's like, okay, how long can you hold out? Because we have a rest stop, right? We have, a, we have an exit right here, but I really want to make good time. Although, it's like a lot, it doesn't make any sense if you stop now or later, but whatever. You know, you, you maybe just don't want to stop because you're in a groove and you're good to go, and, you, and they're good to go, but you're like, well, how long in a different way? And it's like, how long can you hold out, etc.? And you kind of make a plan. Now, here's the deal. Here's the, it's, it's a party. It's... So the son, the father says, the king says to the prince, how long can you wait? He says, uh, I'm very thirsty. All right. They continue traveling. At, some, at a certain point, the son, the, the, the prince says, as I said, I'm, I'm going to pass out. I'm very thirsty. We need to... So the king says, all right, we got, we got to get water. There's no water around. They don't have any water with them. They ran out of water. Whatever it is, they don't have any water. So the king calls together at an advisory meeting. He calls together his royal advisors and he says, look, we need water. So the head of the royal cavalry says, I have fast horses. Right, cavalry horses? We have fast horses. We know where the closest city is. And we can 
get water and be back in a jiffy. We'll take our fastest horses, we'll get water, we'll bring it back, and that's it. Then you had the head of the Royal Corps of Engineering who says to the king, I have a different proposal. Based on my engineering prowess, I have determined that if we dig in such and such spot nearby, I believe we're going to hit water. And we'll be able to create a well and draw water and provide your son. It's also going to take some time. We've got to dig. We've got to find the place. But we can make it happen. Provide water for your son. The king is thinking, do we send the cavalry? Or do we send the engineers? What do, what do you do? The horses or the... Uh, right? Is it USC with the Trojan horse? Or is it Georgia Tech with the engineers? Like, what is it? Big epic battle of collegiate... So they decide... What, what do you think he decides? Huh? Which one? The, the horse or the engineers? Engineers. Why? What's the answer? Because he says like this. If we get water from the other city... So the next time someone else gets stuck in this place without water, they still won't have water. But if we build a well, and we mark the well well, and we mark it well, literally and figuratively, we mark it well, then people in the future, if they'll ever be traveling along this road and ever be thirsty in this place, they too will have access to that life spring and that life-giving water. The Baal Shem Tov said, the great, the Heilagev, the holy Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem, the founder of the Hasidic movement, he said, this is what a Jewish holiday is. You travel throughout the year. The year is your landscape. And you travel, you march, time moves forward, and you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. And it's a schlep. And it's, oh, it's cold. Maybe it's rainy. Or maybe it's snowing if you're up north. or Whatever it is. And you're fetching, and you don't want to get out of bed, and it's your, the doldrums have set in, and it's life, and the, the, the day-to-day is draining. It's draining your spirit. You come to a Jewish holiday. A Jewish holiday is that well that is marked, that you can draw water from. Basically, it's, 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 it's landmarks in time. Just like in space, Right? When you talk about terrain and space, you can have wells along the journey. In time, you also have wells along the journey. Every holiday is a moment in time where something special happened. Whether it was the Exodus, whether it was Passover, no, that's Passover, the Exodus and Passover, whether it was the giving of the Torah at Sinai, whether it was this, the miraculous salvation of the Jewish people during the times of Purim or during the times of Hanukkah, whatever it is, you have a, a, a magnificent moment of time when there was this infusion of divine energy into the world. But it's not just that it came, the cavalry brought the energy, and we drank the energy, and then it disappeared, and we depleted it. These are wells that have been dug into time itself, into the calendar itself. Just like you can dig a physical well into the ground, into the earth, you can dig a spiritual well into the earth, into the stuff of time itself. When we come across, when we approach a Jewish holiday, we have access, we have the ability to, 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 to find that well marked, to draw water, to draw metaphysical, metaphorical water, and to drink, to derive energy from that experience. But every holiday is a different well. It's not the same well. It's not just water, water here, water there, water there. As we march along the year, it's all the same water. It's different flavored water. 
It's a different flavor. You have lemon essence water. You have raspberry, you know, lime. You have different types of energy that are present in different wells and different holidays throughout the year. That the Jewish calendar. So Passover is freedom. And uh, Shavuot is Torah. And Sukkot is divine providence and divine protection. Purim is the physical salvation. Hanukkah is spiritual salvation. What we see from the prayers is that Hanukkah and Purim, although they're both rabbinic holidays or post, post-biblical holidays, they share very different values. They represent very different things. And they give us a shot of a different energy, uh, respectively, based on what they represent. One is representing the battle against the opposition to Torah and Mitzvot, and one is representing the battle against those who wish to harm us physically. So for your standard anti-Semitism, kill the Jew, we have Purim for that. Purim represents that we've been there, we faced that threat, God helped us. That's, we have that to draw energy from. Hanukkah is when assimilation creeps into the, to the Jewish national psyche. It's when Hellenism creeps in. It's when, and as we said last week, and we're going to pick up on this, this theme right now, it's when the world says, and again, it doesn't have to be malicious, and they're not breaking into your temple and, and defacing your synagogues. It's not, so, it's not so overt. But when the world says, come on, you don't need to be so Jewish. You don't need to be so religious. This whole God thing, you want to have quaint rituals, you want to celebrate Hanukkah as a cultural thing, fine. But as a religious holiday, nah. You don't need a religious holiday. You want to spin a dreidel, wonderful. You want to eat latkes, fantastic. Trader Joe's will sell you latkes. Keep it very, give gifts, make it a secular holiday. It's that battle to retain the soul of Judaism. Not just the ritual, when I say ritual, not just the culture of Judaism, not just gefilte fish Judaism, not just challah Judaism, but soulful Judaism. The battle against a world that says, come on, don't be so excited about that God stuff. It's hocus pocus. That precedent for fighting against that and being able to retain one's soulful Judaism, that's what Hanukkah is about. Make sense? Sort of ish? Okay. What we're doing here now in chapter 3, we're on page, well, we got to page 38, but I want to go back a little bit because there's a footnote 55 that we skipped that is incredibly significant. Footnote 55 on page 36. What we did in, in, in yet yeah, well, last week in the paragraph that's, or, or in the section that begins with the caption, Your Torah is explain what we read in the prayers, what, what Ed read before on page 51 going into 52, where it says that the Greeks rose up against us to, make us, to, to try to make us forget your, referring to God, your Torah and the decrees of your will, your mitzvot. The way he explains it according to Kabbalah here in this text is that they didn't even want us to stop learning Torah and doing mitzvot. They would have been okay for us to learn Torah and to fulfill commandments. As long as we acknowledged that there's nothing divine or godly about it. You want to learn Torah as a book of wisdom? 
Wonderful. Torah was written by a lot of smart people and philosophers, just like Greek philosophy, just like Aristotle, just like Plato, just like all of the Socrates. Great philosophical work. The Torah is profound, but God communicated it with you on a mountain at Sinai when you were standing there. Baba Mises. That's what they said. They, they didn't mind when we read in the prayer that they wanted us to, to take, they wanted us to desist from your Torah and the statutes, the decrees of your will. It doesn't mean they wanted us to stop learning Torah altogether. They wanted us to stop learning your Torah. They wanted us to learn Torah as our Torah in the sense of Tzugazunt, in the sense of a human Torah, an intellectual Torah, but Torah being your Torah, divine Torah. They said, no way. Remember, as we explained last week, that this is exactly the way the Greeks, the Greek philosophers conceived of God. They also conceived of God. But they conceived of God, they also, they had many different gods, but they also conceived of, it's in the writings, in the Greek philosophical writings, of a first cause or a prime mover. They also spoke of such things. But their conception of that ultimate original God is not one that actually communicates with mankind. It's not one in which we have an intimate relationship with. That when we study that Torah, it's like we're studying Torah together with the author, as we say we are. They said, there's no way. It's too big of a connection. A perfect God does not get involved in an imperfect world. Think about Plato's forms. Plato's philosophy, his philosophy of forms is that there's the ideal tree. And every other physical tree, there's the ideal concept of a tree. We've spoken about this before in this class, right? How you have trees. Right? I look out and I see tree. I say, that's a tree, that's a tree, and that's a tree. But how can they all be trees if they look different? Because they all share common, common tree themes. So Plato said there must be a concept of a tree. And every other tree is a form of that perfect concept of tree. So there's one perfect, absolute perfect tree. But that perfect tree never actually is, is, becomes incarnate. Never becomes, there must be sneezing stuff in the air. Um, it's all that alien dust from last night. So, you know, that, that perfect form of tree never becomes embodied in an actual tree. All other physical trees are but a pale representation of that perfect tree. That's the same way they conceived of God. They conceived of God in the same way that there are all these forms that might be you know, in God's image or whatever it is, but they're not... Uh, let, let me, let me back, backtrack on that. What they were saying is that God does not get... There's, a per, there's perfection. God is perfection. Just like the perfect tree can never actually become a... Re, can, never can actually take physical form because any physical form is by definition not perfect. So too God does not get involved in the imperfection of this world. So to tell me that God communicated His wisdom and His will in Torah, and when you study it, it's like you're studying and God is studying it with you. And when you do a mitzvah, it's, it's doing what God wants and fulfilling His will, what He wants you to do. On this earth, they said, that we don't accept. You want to do, you want to, you want to have your culture? You want to remember your exodus? You want to remember the day that you became a nation? You want to have your independence day? Wonderful. You want to remember the time that you traveled the desert and you, you needed huts? You want to do Sukkot? No problem. You want to have laws against murder? Idolatry? Well, idolatry, you have to figure out how that would work. You want to have laws against um, theft and you want to establish court system and ha- ha- knock yourself out. We appreciate that. But when you come and you tell me that God told you not to wear woolen linen together 
And when I ask you why, you say, because God said so. God cares that you wear wool and linen. We don't accept that. We reject that. You want to commemorate some, something that happened in your national history? Wonderful. Mazel tov. You want to create law and order? Mazel tov. Those two forms of mitzvot are called edus and mishpatim. Mishpatim are logical, rational, civil laws. Mishpatim. There are three types of mitzvot. Mishpatim are laws that make sense. Makes sense not only for the Jew, for the non-Jew. Not only, for, in other words, it's universally it makes sense. For example, the laws, as I mentioned, against theft, the laws against murder, the laws against whatever it is. The, the basic, those are the only two that come to mind. Basic law and order, laws of damages. When your property, when your ox or your car hits someone else's car, you're liable for the damages. Basic law and order. Or somebody gives you something to watch and it gets lost, who's, who's on the hook for it? These are mitzvot, basic law and order. Mishpatim, they, they said, we get it, we sign off on it, you can do that mitzvah, no problem, we don't have an issue with that. Eidos, the testimonial mitzvot, the mitzvot that we do to commemorate an incident in our history, they also said, knock yourself out, sounds wonderful, Let's, uh, let, you can go ahead and do that. When it came to the irrational, the chukim, they're called chukim. That chukim mitzvot, the laws of purity and... Thanks. Appreciate it. Oh, we got... All right, if you don't mind closing the door, thanks. All right, ladies, you've got to be quiet. You can't hear us Let's travel back and forth. is laying down the law. How was that? It worked so well, I think I'm going to be a little bit more quiet now. <laughs> So again, chukim, third category of mitzvot, these are mitzvot that make no sense, defy logic, even after you, you hear them and you study them and you understand, you figure out how you're supposed to do it, it still makes no sense. The laws of the red heifer, the laws of ritual purity and impurity, the laws, there are certain laws, the kosher, laws of kosher. It's not because there are clean animals or unclean animals or because it's healthier or not healthier. That's not, it may or may not be true physically. That's not the ground, that's not the foundation of Torah. That's not the foundation of kosher. Kosher is considered to be a chok, a divine decree. Why is it that these animals are kosher, these animals are not? Oh, I know why, because if it chews its cud and has put hooves, then it's kosher. Why? Because God said so. The Greeks, the hell. the Hellenistic philosophy, society, culture, movement, etc., rejected that notion. Rejected that notion outright. You want to study Torah as a philosophy, as a human philosophy? Go ahead. You want to have quick, uh, rituals and, and you want to have like commemorative, commemorative uh, mitzvot and, and, and rational mitzvot? No problem. You want to get involved in something supernatural and something divine and something you want to say godly? We reject that. The question is, the Greeks want them to study something divine, which was certainly their... Their idols. Their gods were also created in human image. They cre- but the, the question is, is that don't put on the Torah as something that is godly. Do you, uh, they try to influence them? No, because their notion of God is very different than our notion of God. Our God says that I have no image, I have no name, I have no, there's nothing, there's no symbol, there's no image, there's no, there's nothing that you can capture the Jewish God with. There's no, there's no tagline. It's like, 
It's not even Prince before he moved, changed his name to a symbol. You know, the musician changed his name to a symbol. God doesn't even have that symbol. So it's, it's, God has nothing, there's nothing that we can capture God. There's nothing that we can, there's no handle on God. The Greek gods had handles. I'm sure they said, we have Zeus, we have all these other fertility gods and other powerful gods and, you know, whatever it is. I'm sure they, they wouldn't mind to influence us in that way. But, I, you know, I think it's more a lot, the, the essential distinction is, you're believing in a God, in the, the, the original God. As being, as being some, as being an entity or being a, a, a deity, whatever it is, that communicates with you in a way that he doesn't assume a form or whatever, but in a way that there is a communication, there is a Torah, there are mitzvot, that we believe that he wants us, to, that God wants us to do. They said, we reject that. Do we want you to, to follow Zeus, to follow this, to follow that? I don't, you know, they did put up their idols in the temple. That's a historical fact. We know that the Talmud tells us they did put up idols in the temple. It gives you an answer. I think it was more along the lines of keep it rational. Even their gods were somewhat rational. You know, they, they figured out you know, a, a god that does X, Y, we need a god that does this, we need a god that does that, we need a god that does the other, so we have to have multiple gods for multiple uh, purposes, etc. So you have, you have that type of rational approach to, 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 the, to the way, to their structure of gods. They wanted that to be the way things rolled as opposed to as opposed to wanting things to work in a uh, in a way that we just cite, you know, divine, godly, the way we define it, something that is beyond anything that we could, you know, that we could influence and that, that that we could understand even. So that's why they wanted us they wanted us to forget your Torah and the statutes of your of your will. Not all the mitzvot. They wanted us specifically. To cease performing the chukim, the mitzvot that don't make any sense. They said, do the other ones, but not those. Now we need to move to footnote 55, which we missed last week. Okay? Sandy, if you don't mind reading, footnote 55 on page 30. Huh? No, David's going to read inside. No, I have a plan here. Dave? No, no, David. No, 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 David's. David's. I'm keep. I don't want to. I'm feeling it's not fair to give David not only, not only all the reading every week, but also all the footnotes and all the prayer. That's like that's too burdening. So I decided we're going to go that way and come back. So I have a very. It's a master plan. Trust me. It's all. It's all premeditated. Footnote fifty-five. No, it's good. Just, just uh, go. Footnote fifty-five. Just, just wing it. You don't have to make up anything. It's all right, right there. 36, footnote 55. Yeah. Um, note also what is related in the Midrashim of our sages. The Greeks said, Write for yourselves on the horn of an ox that you have no portion in the God of Israel, implying that their decree was against the divinity. They wanted us to write in the horn of an ox. Why? They wanted us to etch it. And the mystics also explain the significance of the horn of the ox. We'll get into, uh, we're not going to get into that right now. The point is they wanted us to write that we have no portion in the God of Israel. In other words, what's the issue? The spiritual connection, the divine connection with God. Now, now he asks a question. Who's he? The author. So the, the Rebbe asked the question. And, and it seems like a contradiction. This, this approach to understanding what the Greeks wanted seems to be at odds with what Maimonides writes about Hanukkah and about what the Greeks wanted to do. 
what the, the Hellenists wanted to do. Uh, continue. This is not contradicted by what Rambam, Rambam writes. Um, and they nullified their religion and did not allow them to engage in Torah and mitzvot. And of the mitzvot, they are known to have prohibited circumcision, sanctifying the new month and Shabbat, implying that their decree was against the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. Now, uh, so, let me, so let's stop here, because really this is a question mark. Although it's written as one sentence, it's kind of like the... Uh, the, uh, from the original, from the Hebrew, that's kind of written just straight out. But there's a question, and, and after the M dash where it says four, that's going to be the answer. But what's the question? The question is like this. We're saying now that the Greeks did not mind that we study Torah and did mitzvot. They didn't mind. They just didn't want us to do it because God said so. But we do see that Maimonides writes that they did try to abolish Torah and mitzvot. They did try to abolish circumcision sanctifying the new month, Rosh Chodesh, Shabbat observance. They did go after uh, practical observance, and they went after Torah study. So what do you mean that you're telling me that, that uh, Kabbalah, that they didn't really want to abolish Torah mitzvot, it's just not to do it because God said so. But they, they actually abolished these things. So here's... Here, they basically came in with their army and they said, you can't do it uh, under pain of death. The, yeah, so there was a physical thing, but it was, but Haman, Haman didn't care if we did mitzvot or not. He didn't care if we, Haman didn't care. He said, you're Jewish, you have Jewish blood, you're out. It's pretty much like, like Hitler, Yamashulai. He just said, you have the blood, it's, it's, it was more of a, a physical thing. It's like, you're Jewish, we've got to get rid of you, we're going to kill you. They said, you're doing Torah mitzvot, and the way we're explaining it here is, you, you're, you're, you're ascribing a divinity, a godliness to it, that we don't like. But the question is, but what about, according to Maimonides, they, they did take practical steps in abolishing certain mitzvot. So take a look in Torah, so take a look at the answer, for it can be said. For it can be said that the beginning and primary aspect of the battle was to cause them to forget your Torah and to take them away from the statutes of your will i.e. the divine aspect of Torah and mitzvot, without prohibiting actual performance of Torah and mitzvot. And from the evolved later, and from this, and from this evolved later, the decrees, these are not my reading glasses, no um, and from this evolved later, the decrees upon the actual fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot. So there you have it. So what he says here is he, he basically reconciles the mystical perspective on Hanukkah with the, 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 the one that's, that's written in the, in the book of Jewish law through by Maimonides. And, and he says that at the beginning it was really only against the spiritual aspect of Torah and mitzvot. So they said, study Torah, no problem. You can study Torah, keep your books. No problem, you don't have to throw anything away. We're not going to burn anything. Study your Torah. But it's, God didn't give it to you. Come on. It's a Baba Misa. It's a story. It's a philosophy. We also have philosophy. We also have good books. Study ours, study yours. We'll all study together. We'll all be enlightened. Later on it evolved where they said, don't study at all. So there was two, two steps. With the mitzvot, originally they said, no problem, do your mitzvot. Just don't tell me that God told you to do it. You want to do a ritual, you want to commemorate something, knock yourself out. Later on they said, we don't even want you to do those. So that's the way he describes it. Although the, the examples that he gives, circumcision, sanctifying the new month in Shabbat, they are kind of spiritual mitzvot. Circumcision doesn't necessarily have a reason for it, other than God said circumcising the eighth day. Sanctifying the new month, Rosh Chodesh, is also 
Saint, when the new month appears, that's the when the new moon appears, that's the new month. Why? I don't know because God said so. Shabbat, you, God rested, so we rest. Why did God rest? Because He created the world. God creates the world. All right. So I do think that these mitzvot are more of the spiritual ones, anyway. But also, it says in the commentaries that these three mitzvot are mitzvot that we got as a people before the Torah was given. Circumcision, we got Abraham got circumcision, the mitzvah. So that's before, or in, in, the, in Egypt, before the Exodus, they also had to do circumcision. So circumcision precedes Sinai. Rosh Chodesh also precedes Sinai. In Egypt, God said to Moshe, this month of Nisan, the month of redemption, shall be your first month. And he showed them the, showed them the new month. He showed them the, the new moon. And he said, this is Rosh Chodesh. So Rosh Chodesh precedes the, the, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And Shabbat, in Shabbat, they also got the mitzvah of Shabbat. In Marah, uh, before they got to Sinai, God gave them the mitzvah of Shabbat. So these three mitzvot are almost like the mitzvot that you need before you do to- before Sinai, before the rest of, uh, of, of Torah and mitzvot. So they wanted to attack specifically the foundation of the mitzvot and, and of Torah itself. So that's what they went after. Morning, you had a question. Um, what, what I think I'm hearing here is that see, the reason why you can't limit it because what Judaism provides is God about our understanding. Isn't that kind of the Jewish people's understanding? It's my individual understanding. And it's, as soon as you put a face on it or a name on it, you limit it. Because it's not all encompassing. You can't be a guy that's interpreted. For, for a lot of people, it's hard to conceive of a guy that takes care of the world and, and, and ties and, and everything. And, my, and, and here's my individual petition. Right. I mean, Got this big and then the time for my pulling my But don't let me go. But don't let me go. And so I think that all these things are to control it so that God is not the supreme ruler, but he's sort of a contract employee that we call him. Well, you have to understand, I mean that and that's accurate. You have to understand that the way the structure, the high the the, the God structure hierarchy of, of, of many cultures, including the Greek the, 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 the Greek culture, was that you have like a CEO, if you will, but who's totally hands off and who then puts in other gods to run actual stuff. Judaism takes away the middleman. You get, we get direct from the manufacturer, right? Direct from the from <laughs> That's why Jews love buying wholesale. I mean, right? Because, no, that's ingrained in the religion is you don't have to work through a middleman. <laughs> so you tell me, you tell me, you got to buy retail, I'll tell you how much did you buy it for. I'm not buying <laughs> Chutzpah. You charge me, I know how much you paid for that. <laughs> what are you saying? Are you going to mark it up like that on me? I'm Jewish. So that's, that's kind of the attitude. And, huh? It, it all derives from the spiritual attitude of, we don't have a middleman. God says in the Torah so many times, don't have other gods, don't have other gods. Why don't have other gods? What were the other gods? The other gods were, you need rain, there's a rain god. You need fertility, there's a fertility god. You need, whatever it is, we got a god for that. There's an app, it's like apps. You have gods, god apps. <laughs> And I can tell you, yeah, you have an app, you have access to it. It was very convenient for them. And Judaism rejects it. Judaism says you don't need that other stuff. You don't need that middle layer of hierarchy. You go straight to the source. And the source is God. And God is the one that is solely in control. Nothing else is in control. And as Marnin said, one thing that it says in the Torah is you're not allowed to create an altar of a single stone. 
It says, don't, actually, no, no, no. Um, I think it says, yeah, I think it says you shouldn't create an altar out of a single stone. And there's also another prohibition against creating God in molten, in a molten form, like with metal. And they both, both prohibitions share the same theme. is that don't create God in your image. Don't create God, don't cast God in a certain image. That this is the way God is, and God is not... And don't create a single... Although God is one, but don't limit God based on the way you perceive God, etc. That's not the only... Don't create... Bottom line is don't create... We, should, we ought not create God in our image. And the, the, the philosophers, they got hung up on logic. And logic dictates that something that's perfect doesn't hang out with something that's imperfect. That something that's infinite cannot be in a finite space. And Judaism says, don't get God, don't limit God by your logical equations. If you have an infinite God and a finite world, they can't mix. So God obviously put more finite gods in charge of the finite world. That makes sense. That makes sense. So philosophically, it's sound. Judaism says... Philosophy, that sound is wonderful, but that's not what we believe. We believe in a God that defies logic, that's not bound. Don't limit God. Basically, the bottom line is, don't limit God to your logic. And say, well, if God is infinite, so He can't be in a finite space. God is infinite and true, in, as we've said many times in this class. True, the true definition of being truly infinite is not that you're limited to the place of infinity. It's that you are equally found in the infinite space and the finite space. Because otherwise, you're limiting God. As you try to make God so perfect and unlimited, you're actually limiting God. Because you're saying God cannot exist in this finite, flawed space. So guess what? You've now limited God. You've created a space where God can't be. And in your, in your aim, philosophically, to, to keep God perfect, keep God infinite, you've now limited God. There's something God cannot do. So, Judaism, but that's still, that's still too philosophical. That's still a philosophical twist. Judaism rejects the philosophy of separating God from the world, God from Torah, God from the mitzvah. So the Greeks didn't mind if we studied Torah, if we did mitzvot, theoretically. But if we, or practically, but if we did it, if we're doing it, because it's godly, that's where they had a problem. Now we pick it up on page 38. Now we talk about the mitzvot. And we talk about the three types of mitzvot that I mentioned before. And we share an, an, a, a profound understanding of how all three levels of mitzvot can coexist with, within each other. And that's what we're about to talk about, the blend of all the mitzvot together. 38, the statutes. David, please take it away. Similarly, with regard to mitzvot, the war of the Greeks was against the divinity of mitzvot, against the fact that mitzvot are the divine will. We maintain that this mitzvah is not just something we came up with because it's, it makes sense, or because it's about law and order, or because it's a commemorative mitzvah. No, this is what God wants. A perfect God, an infinite God, wants me to wrap physical finite tefillin? Yes. Doesn't make sense. God cares that I light Shabbat candles? Yes. How? That's what we believe. So they, that's where they had a problem. They had a problem that we said that the mitzvah are divine will. Continue. Hence, to take, them, to take them away from the statutes of your will, specifically statutes and specifically your will, which contains two interpretations. Before we get to two interpretations, the phrase to take them away from the statutes of your will is again from the passage that we read in the Siddur that Ed read. They wanted, the Greeks wanted to take them, i.e. us, away from the statutes of your will. So he says there's two, there's two uh, f- words in there 
that are very important. Chukei, statutes, chukim, chukei, ritzonecha, the statutes of your will, statutes, specifically statutes, the illogical mitzvot, the ones that don't make sense, and the mitzvot of your will. We only do because that's what you want, God. So he says, and this itself contains two interpretations. Number one. Even the Greeks agreed to the testimonial and judicial mitzvot, since they are rational mitzvot. Their entire battle was against the statute-type mitzvot, since they are fulfilled only because they are the divine will. This is the basic explanation, until we get really deep in the next paragraph. But right, right now, the first explanation, basic explanation is, they had no problem, as I mentioned before, if we kept Passover, if we ate some matzah, if we set up a justice system, they had no problem with that. Testim, uh, testimonial mitzvot, that bear testimony to an event that happened in our past, and our, no problem. Judicial mitzvot, no problem. Rational, we get it, you get it, great, we're on board. Their entire battle was against the statute-type mitzvot, i.e. the mitzvot that make no sense. So when the Greeks said, why are you doing it? We say, because God said so. Why? Because God said so. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't handle that. And the ones that we fulfill only because they are divine will, that's what they rejected, and that's what they were fighting against. By the way, it's no different, again, to modernize it, it's no different than in our society, in our culture, where we may feel our, on, our, uh, on our own. We may feel uncomfortable doing the mitzvot that we don't understand. It's like, I'm on board. Think about it for ourselves. I'm on board, Rabbi, I get it. When I study something that I understand, it makes me feel good. To keep a mitzvah that's logical, it makes sense. I feel good about it. When you tell me about super rational stuff, i.e. not supernatural stuff, super rational stuff, a mitzvah like kosher, a mitzvah like a mitzvah that doesn't really have an explanation for it, and you tell me, but God wants you to do it, I don't feel so comfortable with that. That's exactly what we're talking about. The Greeks also didn't feel comfortable. Or Greek philosophy. The Syrian Greeks, the Greek philosophy, the Greek movement, right? That, that enlightenment also didn't feel comfortable with that. The stuff that makes sense, makes sense. Stuff that doesn't make sense, don't do. Okay, that's one explanation, what they wanted. What they were fighting against. Second explanation is so much deeper. Take it away. A second, so much deeper explanation is that their desire to take them away from the statutes of your will included all mitzvot. Even the testimonial and judicial mitzvot, as shall be explained in the following chapter. The second explanation is that they were also fighting against the other mitzvot. Even the rational mitzvot. But why? They were on board with the rational mitzvot. But if you did a rational mitzvah, and you said, why am I doing the rational mitzvah? Why am I not killing? Why am I not murdering? Not because I understand that murder is wrong, because God said at Mount Sinai, in one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. If you cited God in the logical mitzvot, they also rejected that. See where we're going with this? They not... Here are the two explanations. You have to pull down like a pie chart or whatever it is. You have three categories of mitzvot. Category one, logical mitzvot. Category number two, testimonials. Category number three, the illogicals. The logicals, the testimonials, the illogicals. First explanation is the Greeks only had a beef with category number three. Your logicals you should keep, your testimonials you'll keep, we won't bother you. The illogicals, why are you doing that? Come on, stop that. Stop that nonsense. That's first explanation. Second explanation is they rejected all three categories. But why? The logicals are logical. The testimonials are testimonials. They rejected them 
if you said, if you did it, not because it's logical or testimonial, but because God said to do it. If you also cited divine will, God's will, while doing the other first two categories, they also had a beef with that. And the truth is, Judaism calls upon us, Judaism calls upon us to not only view the third category of mitzvot as divine, as divine will, but also the first two categories of divine will. And that's what I mentioned before. When we don't murder, the Rebbe said this many times, if do not murder, do not kill, is logical, the Rebbe said, I was in Berlin in the 30s. I was in France. I was in Berlin. I traveled through Europe. I was there. The Rebbe said this at Fabrengen once at a public gathering. He said, I was there. And you wanted to find the most cultured society, the most scientific society, the most prolific in the music and the arts. You wanted to find the, the highest society. It was Germany. Intellectuals everywhere. In the, in the cafes, not the cafes, in the uh, whatever, salons. salons. In the salons with the cigars and with the scotch and with the women. They were all, that's, that's what they were doing. They were also playing classical music, by the way, as they were gunning down etc. Jews. But what happens when do not murder becomes something that I understand? It's based on the way I see things and not a divine decree. If it's based on the way I understand things, well then I can rationalize. Do not murder when all things are equal. But if we need to preserve a perfect race and we need to do this and that and the other and we need to cleanse society of less desirables, well then it becomes allowed. Because it's not actually murdering, it's really just, it's weeding out. So it's different. Why? Weird, what's the premise of all of that? It's that I can decide in my mind what's okay and what's not okay. Judaism says the foundation of Torah and mitzvot is that even those mitzvot that are logical, we don't keep them because they're logical. We keep them because God said so. And so when God says do not murder, what it means is absolutely not. In any situation. When you talk about war and self-defense, that's something else. That's an only, the only context is self-defense. And in war, how that plays out in war, that's another conversation. But the concept of the mind... That's also in Torah, by the way. The rules of engagement are also in Torah. So the same divine author. The point is that we don't justify. We don't... Even the logical mitzvot, we're called upon as Jews not to fulfill them because our mind tells us that they make sense. Oh, it makes sense, so we'll do it. Because the moment our mind says, you know what, this doesn't make sense, or let's bend the rules, then I'm going to do that, and there goes, there goes the law. So there's there are a few issues. And these few issues we're going to actually introduce in chapter 4. And I'll, 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 I'll lay them out, and maybe we'll break some ground as well. And here they are. Number one, if you fulfill the rational mitzvot because they're rational, then you'll end up breaking them. Because your mind will justify anything. And your mind will, ev will eventually justify the exception. And so you'll, 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 you'll end up breaking it. And so, we're, so if the Greeks tell you, you know what? Keep the rational, the logical mitzvot and the testimonials because they make sense. You're going to end up not keeping them because that makes sense. That's the way it's going to work. Because if Passover falls out 
right? Passover falls out in an inconvenient time of the year, you're going to change it. Why? Because logically, it makes sense that we're commemorating an event. Commemorating an event, commemorating an event so if, if, if it's more convenient, so we're going to shift it around. Because it's again for our benefit, right? It's for, if it's a divine decree, so then it's, it's immovable, it's untouchable. We're doing it, we're following orders. If it's logical, and that's the foundation of the fulfillment, well then suddenly we're going to modify, we're going to change things around, we're going to update, we're going to change. And 2,000 years later, Judaism wouldn't look the same. We wouldn't have Judaism, it would look nothing like it looks today. Judaism wouldn't exist. If all of the logical and testimonials were only done because of that. So that's, re- that's, that's idea number one. Why you need this super rational, illogical acceptance, even with the logical and testimonials. Does this make sense so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. Number two is to evoke within yourself a connection to God that's not based on the mind. You can have different types of relationships with God, but if your relationship is that I do the logical stuff because it makes sense, what that means is that my relationship with you, God, is an intellectual one completely. The way I relate to you, God, is in the mind. Not in totality, but only in the mind. And when my mind says okay, then we're on board, we're together, we have a relationship. When my mind doesn't say okay, because my mind doesn't get it, then we have no relationship. That's like basically a spouse telling the, the other spouse, like a person telling their spouse, Honey, I, you know, I love you, and I'm ready to do what you want, but only really the ones that, the stuff that I understand. So when I understand what you want, then I'll do it. When I don't understand, I'm really not prepared to, do, to extend myself. Well, that means that my relationship is only intellectual. Or more than just the difference between intellectual and, and higher than intellectual, it's really the difference of, is it, about, is it about me, or is it about you? When it's about me, then it's about how I understand things, how I perceive things. If I'm on board, it's, it's about me. So the relationship then, it's really not about you, it's really about me. So, so long that I understand the mitzvah, it's logical, or it's testimonial, which is also, again, a logical thing. I understand why it's important to celebrate Passover, to commemorate the freedom, etc. I get that. So, as long as it's logical, as long as I am comfortable with it, I'm on board. The moment I'm uncomfortable with, I'm not ready to, in a sense, submit myself to a higher authority. I'm not ready to surrender myself to something greater than myself. What that means is, my relationship is intellectual, and it's only, it's driven by, in a sense, ego. It's driven by self. I am creating the relationship in my image as opposed to being open to God's side of the relationship. Does this make sense? If I'm re- when I'm ready to suspend logic and say, God, you want me to do this mitzvah? It makes no sense. Or, even more profound, you want me to do this mitzvah that makes sense? I'm still going to do it because it doesn't make sense. Because I know that... The, that uh, I'm suspending my understanding of this rational mitzvah to do it just because you said so. At that point I say, God, I care about you in the relationship and I'm in it for you, not in it for me and how I understand how I perceive things. Does this make sense? What's the third idea? The third idea... The third idea is, is, is incredible as well. Third idea, and we're going to get to this next week. Inside. I'm just teasing this stuff. Oh, no, and, and we're presenting it. Fleshing it out. The third idea is that even the mitzvot that have, even the logical mitzvot, 
our divine will. Which means that the reason that you understand is not the, is not the ultimate reason. Because God's reasoning, God's, you want to tell me this mitzvah is, is an intellectual mitzvah. I get it, it's logical. It makes so much sense. Do you understand God's reason for the mitzvah? You understand your reason for the mitzvah. You can understand a reason for the mitzvah, but the ultimate reason for the mitzvah. As one of the footnotes we're going to explain, we're going to get into this again. We're going to develop this more next week. But you talk about tefillin. Wrapping tefillin. So is there a reason for it? Of course there's a reason for it. Tefillin reminds us of the Exodus. How, how it does that because the chapters in it. And it also it reminds us to it's on the arm near the heart and it's on the head over the brain. So it reminds us that our minds and our hearts should be focused on God, etc. It's a wonderful way to get us connected with God. Okay, so we have a reason for tefillin. So, now, so it's a logical thing on some level. But why are they square? Why are they black? Why are they leather? Why do you wrap them around seven times? Why, why, why? There's no reason. There's no logical reason for the details of the mitzvot. Even the mitzvot that do make sense, even many, many of the mitzvot that do have logical reasons for them, the details do not have logic. The details aren't explained. And even the explanations that we do have. Can we, say, can we limit God's intelligence by saying, that's God's reason? And God doesn't have anything deeper than that that we don't understand. So even intellectually, as we approach a logical mitzvah, if we're intellectually honest, we'll say that this mitzvah is so much deeper than the, the small, minute detail of the, the, the glimmer of, of, of logic that I understand with this mitzvah. And even more so. A mitzvah, at its core, is divine will. It's something that God wants. As we've said many times, when you want something, a want, a desire is higher than a reason, than rationale. I want something, then I'll find the reason why I want it. But I want it, essentially. I want it. I want a true desire. It's something that transcends logic. It's not logical. It's not because it makes sense, therefore I want it. A true desire is something that's deeper than, intelli- than, than intellect, than the mind. It's called Ratzon Shalamayin Lamiseichel, or Chachma. Ratzon will desire a want that's higher, that far transcends logic, intelligence, intellect, rationale. Turns out that every mitzvah is divine will, will that transcends logic. It's just that God had different types of will. Some mitzvot God wanted to be seen clearly as His will. And some mitzvah, God wanted us to have a glimmer of understanding with the mitzvah. In other words, some mitzvot, God wanted us to exercise our submission to His will. And some mitzvot, God wanted us to have a little bit of understanding so that we, maybe we feel more excited about doing the mitzvah. But even the logical explanation is what God wanted for that mitzvah. So it turns out that even what we understand is still God's will. Why did God want us to understand this mitzvah, not that mitzvah? Why did He only give us a, a way to understand that mitzvah and not the other mitzvah? Why couldn't our minds, He created our minds in a way, or created the systems of logic in a way where the red heifer makes sense? And murder doesn't make sense, not murdering doesn't make sense. Why couldn't He create it that way? That itself is something that transcends logic. Logic won't explain why God shows certain mitzvot to give a rational handle on some not. You follow me? And so therefore, even as we understand certain mitzvot, 
our understanding, our own mind should tell us that this too is something that transcends will, and that the, that that I'm understanding it, and that that I explored intellectually is also divine will. It's God wants me to understand. Not that I want to understand it, not that this is how I relate to it through my understanding because I understand it, but God wants me in a way that transcends logic to understand it with my logic. So even as my logic is involved in the mitzvah, I'm fulfilling God's will, what He wants me to do. Why does He want me to understand this mitzvah? I don't know. I'm submitting to Him on that level. Make sense? And then there's one more idea. And that is, that if our mind comes to all of these calculations, our mind says, well, there's something greater than the mind, and therefore I should submit. That's also what the Greeks wanted. We can say, and there's a tremendous footnote at the end of 38, footnote 61. And this, is, this, this, this footnote will blow your mind. If it hasn't already been blown. And maybe it hasn't. 61, I'll read this one. Page 39. End of, chapter, end of the chapter 3 that we just got to. Conversely, we can say that the Greeks would have theoretically agreed to the fulfillment of the statutes of the illogical mitzvot on the grounds that it is intellectually compelling that there are things that transcend intellect. The Greeks also were on board with you understanding that there are things that transcend logic. If you, the Greeks said, if you tell me logically it makes sense that my mind is not the ultimate and therefore do things that are illogical, the Greeks also would have been on board with that. You want to go illogical? That makes sense that there are things that are illogical. But the Greeks' opposition was that they not be fulfilled because they are your will. And then he references it, which we'll talk about next week. Their issue was not that I say that my logic tells me to do something illogical, but God tells me to do something illogical. That's what they had a problem with. So we have like four or five different layers of this. And we're going to lay them out again next week. Just to make sure that they're all clear. Any questions? Yes. So where does the... Where, if at all, does the possibility that we're wrong in our explanation come in? So, in other words, we can decide. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, isn't that that's another reason for to be sure about it, right? Oh, for because sure. We can all agree around this table that this mitzvah is done for this rational reason. Yeah, we can that's say kosher, kosher, based on the stats, based on the facts, and based on my research, we do, we do research, and we find that kosher meat is 75% healthier. So we're like, that makes sense, that's why it's kosher. But 20 years from now, the science could negate that. Science could change it, even if the science didn't, that doesn't mean that that's why God wanted it. Right, okay. That doesn't mean that's why God wanted it. God wanted it because He wanted it. Again, the will is greater than the The will is greater than the logic. Every, we believe that everything God wants will be for our benefit. Whether it's a short-term benefit or a long-term benefit, we believe it will benefit us. So the fact that kosher will, will be healthier for us physically, we absolutely believe. But that's not why we eat it. That's not why God gave it to us. And that's probably not God's reason for it. Can we be so arrogant to say that the reason that I figured out, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that as much as we know, you've got to be kidding me, right? How smart are we already? The smartest human being, how smart are we? Right? So, you think, the reason that I figure out, the reason that I understand, that's, what, that's, what, that's the reason that God knows. You're kidding me? You're limiting God to your brain? That's so arrogant. Let alone the fact, that's still within the realm of reason. Your reason is God's reason. God doesn't have any bigger reason. He limit God's reason to your reason. That's still within the realm of reason. And then you go to the next step and say, 
even within God, there's will that transcends reason. God, even if God has a higher reason that's higher than our reason, there's God's will that trumps His own reason. That's purely will that transcends reason. And God and the reason that we have is only because God willed that we have reason. And even that last development is still subject to our intellectualizing uh, and that we still shouldn't intellectualize that process and say well I, tr- I, I understand that there's something greater therefore I should because that's still doing it from an intellectual place so there, so how do you do it? all of this so, is so, we're, so we're learning this so now, how, so now we're stuck now we reach like an impassable point because like you can't now use your logic to even get to that place of of, illog- of, of the, illog- the illogical so, so what do you do? So you, you clear the mind and you say, God wants me to do this, I'm going to do it. Like a simple servant. I'm doing it. I'm not murdering today. Hopefully not. Hopefully we, we all have a non-murder day because God told me to. Not because it makes sense, right? It's always good to have a non-murder day. It always beats the alternative. But even the idea of will, reason, yeah. those are human we're giving human qualities to God, which is Oh, so you're arguing that maybe that's, that, that whole construct is flawed. Right. Well, here's the thing. We know that we're created in the divine image. No, it's a great question. So we don't, we don't project on God. God's projected already on us. So we are saying that the things that exist within us, we know exist also within God, but on a much, on an infinite level. That goes back to the tree, it, but, but the tree not in the Greek sense, but that it's an idea or a manifestation of a, an idea. But even the idea of idea is, is human. So in some ways, what we're talking about, we're using a language and symbols that are human. That but God, not. but here's the thing: God created everything that's down. There's a reverse law of, uh, or the law of, of Kabbalistic gravity. The basic fundamental law is that everything that's down here has a source up there. So all of the, the logical construct, everything that exists down here has a source above. It's like when you see an apple underneath a tree, it started up there and it fell down. Everything. I think what she's saying is even what you just said is a human construct. No, the Torah tells us that God created heaven and earth. Right, so you have, that's the ultimate... Yo, that's, that's where it begins. A hundred percent. It begins with that faith, that, that fundamental Jewish faith that we stood at Sinai. This is what it all comes down to. This is the battle between the philosophers... And Yankel, the tailor, Yankel the tailor, in the shtetl, who says, don't, don't bother with your philosophy. I know that the Abisha, that God gave us the Torah at Sinai, and that's it. That's what this is about. This is about intellectualism. This is about enlightenment. This is about progressiveness versus straight up Jewish faith. We believe that God gave us the Torah, and this is what God wants us to do. And, 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 and there's a purpose for, for all this. Whether we understand it or not, this is what we're, this is what we're here to do. God, gave, God sent, put us here for a mission. Do, study this Torah, do these mitzvot, and that's it. Live a good life. That's what God told us to do. And ultimately, the following Torah is, is beyond irrational. There's no, there's nothing. It comes from God. It's got to be beyond rationale. It's beyond rationale. If it's God's rationale, it's higher than our rationale. If it's God's will, it's higher than any rationale. Even God's rationale. God's will is higher than God's rationale. Bottom line is, the opposition of the Greeks in some in summation was either in the third category, the illogicals, or in all three categories. If you want to accept all three categories as divine will, they rejected that. They rejected that. And the convenience of rejecting it is that you can say that, well, this mitzvah, yes, this mitzvah, no. 
What says this in the Torah? It says in the Torah that we're creating the divine image. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. To be continued.